Uh, my apologies to you folks for uh, two Sundays ago uh, making you feel like a mosquito getting a drink of water with a fire hose. Um, so I thought I should just, seeing as no one complained, I would try it again. Uh, it, as I was preparing for, for that first paragraph in John's Gospel, I, I was, I don't know what to say. It was, it was so amazing uh, what John unpacks in that first, that first paragraph. And, and I, I realize that, that many of you are thinking this is far too big a piece, uh, but actually verses 19 to 51 uh, enjoy an interesting unity, and I'm going to try to pull that together this morning. Uh, this section, as you probably noticed, and you'll, if you have your Bible here, you'll probably want to keep it open. Uh, this section can be divided into four paragraphs, 19 to 28, 29 to 34, 35 to 42, and 43 to 51. And probably your Bibles have paragraph headings, which, by the way, aren't inspired, but there they are at the beginning of each of those paragraphs. And each is marked by the next day. So here we do have a chronological accounting of events with this phrase, the next day. And, and in each section, we learn something about who Jesus is and what he will accomplish. But more than that, we learn something about discipleship and what it means to be his witnesses. And, and I've called this sermon, uh, Jesus, Witness, Titles, Conversion, and Discipleship. And I think all of those kind of bleed together. Uh, so I hope that you're going to be looking for uh, some of that this morning. The structure of this section makes clear that the author's purpose in these verses is the nature of discipleship. The nature of discipleship. And what it means to meet, to know, and to follow Christ. Those are three different verbs, and actually they probably mean different things. To meet, to know, and to follow Jesus. In each case, the disciples are invited to have personal contact with Jesus and to recognize who he truly is. And I would say that fits in with John's overall agenda, which he declares, interestingly, at the end of his book in chapter 20, all these things are written so that you might believe and have life in his name. John says, this is why I wrote this. This is a reoccurring theme as well in the gospel, experiencing Jesus and having a correct understanding of his purpose. Those two go together, experiencing him and understanding his purpose. <clears throat> John's literary technique is to tell a story and then to exploit that story for some theological purpose. So it's not just story. There's a reason. There's a, there's a method here to identify Jesus for us as his readers or to help us also to see what happens in the minds of Jesus' interrogators. So let's talk about witness about Jesus first. And this starts that first paragraph, John the Baptist's self-denial. And, and by the way... You and I aren't good witnesses if we don't also practice some self-denial. It's actually, sorry, it's not about you. It's not about me. Our lives point to Jesus. And, and, and yes, it's totally okay and appropriate to share what Jesus has done for you and me, but, but we still always point to Jesus. And John the Baptist kind of sets that here. This entire account is the testimony of John the Baptist. It says so in verse 19 almost as if we were in a judicial setting and the evidence for and against Jesus is being set before his readers. And of course, John continues to do that in his gospel. John's baptizing activity at the Jordan River had attracted a lot of attention. 
leading many people from Judea, Jerusalem, surrounding areas to come out to him, either to be baptized or to inquire about his work. And here we notice that John first denies that he is the Christ. Christ is actually the Greek translation for the Hebrew word Messiah. So that's the same thing. When he says, I'm not the Christ, means I'm not the Messiah. Throughout late Old Testament and intertestamental Judaism, hope for a coming Messiah was widespread. This would be the Lord's anointed, someone filled with God's power and the Spirit who would work saving miracles. Notice the reference to the Spirit, and we'll talk about that later as well. The Spirit came on Jesus. This is the Lord's anointed. It's no accident that in the days of the Greek and Roman oppression over 300 years after coming back from exile, the term Messiah was filled with political expectations. And I'm guessing some of us also have all kinds of expectations about what God should do for us or who he should be. And we tried to box him in and, and uh, you know, we tried to build a God to our own liking. What a mistake. While John the Baptist declares firmly that he is not the Messiah, Malachi 4 or 5 taught that the Old Testament prophet Elijah would precede the coming Messiah. If John were not the Messiah, perhaps he was Elijah. Because Elijah had been taken from the earth without dying, Jews would speculate that he was mysteriously alive and would return. John, in verse 121, says clearly that he is not Elijah. And what he means is, I'm not Elijah coming back. He was only fulfilling the forerunner rule of Elijah. So in that sense, figuratively, he was fulfilling Elijah's rule. And then we have this reference to the prophet, which is probably a reference to Deut Deuteronomy 18, verse 15 to 19, where a prophet like Moses would return to Israel. This created a lot of speculation about who it would be. And again, in our text, John's answer is succinctly no. Following these denials by John, where he also actually doesn't even identify himself. He doesn't say who he is. See, John, I, I'm irrelevant. This isn't about me. Oh, man, you know, it's so easy to become narcissistic and whatnot when, when you think everybody's there for you. Hmm. We've seen a lot of great people crash and burn by making that mistake. John follows these denials by saying who he is. He quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3, and he says that he is a voice in order to identify his role. All I am is a voice. I'm just a voice. He doesn't elevate himself as having important statue. He never identifies his own name. In fact, he is only a tool in God's hand pointing to another on the horizon. That's who he is. And John's message was that the dawn of the messianic era was at hand, and there is no further need to wait. What you've been waiting for and wanting is here. He has come. And that promise that's on the horizon, that's not some new religion. It's a person. It's a person. If you've got religion and you don't have Jesus, I feel sorry for you because you've got some counterfeit deal. You've got to have Jesus. It's a person. 
John describes him as being so great that by comparison, he, although a prophet, was less than a slave. See, untying the sandal was the chore of a slave. Not even a disciple would untie the sandal of his rabbi. This was a chore reserved for slaves, and John says, I'm not even worthy to do that. That's the measure of Jesus' greatness. So, verse 29 to 34, John the Baptist bears witness to Jesus. On the next day, it says, we have a continuation of John the Baptist's testimony to Jesus. While previously, John could only hint at the coming Christ, now he identifies Christ plainly. The point here is that John can be compared with the questioners that came from Jerusalem who don't know God or understand Jesus. I'm going to pull out a word that you've never heard before, juxtaposition. Yeah, I know. John's attitude and the attitude of these inquirers, totally different. And, and we must recognize, because of free will, there are people that will read Scripture, but their eyes are darkened and they cannot understand, they cannot see Christ, they come out without faith, and then there are those who have their hearts softened and the Holy Spirit works, and they open their minds and hearts and they see Jesus reading the same thing. God never breaks the door down. He invites. He will never obligate you to believe. He just invites you to believe. John's knowledge of the coming one wasn't innate. You notice that in verses 31 to 33. Knowledge had come to him through revelation. It says, when the Spirit descended on Jesus... True knowledge of God is beyond human reach. It's a gift of divine self-disclosure. And John identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's probably fairly clear for the Palestinian Jew that all lamb sacrifices were memorials of deliverance, especially Israel's deliverance, forgiveness of sin and messianic salvation. So it would not be impossible for John to have Passover lamb in mind in this context. But the chief thing is that here we see Jesus as a gift provided by God to take away sin. And then John describes Jesus as one who was before him, before him, repeating an almost identical phrase in verse 15, 15. The importance of Jesus, not in what he does, but in who he is, is highlighted. John's second testimony on this day occurs in verse 32 and 34, uh, 32 and 33. And his testimony is remarkable. John doesn't emphasize the voice from heaven or baptism in the river like some of the other Gospels. Instead, three times he refers to the coming of the Spirit on Christ. And I think that's significant. The Old Testament expected the Messianic era to be a day of renewal when the Spirit would, be on, would not only transform Israel but would rest mightily on the Messiah himself. Yes, the appearance of the Spirit was common in the Old Testament. But it appeared mainly on designated leaders like kings, judges, and prophets, and remained only during the duration of their God-appointed work. So it was temporary. John the Baptist's comment here is telling, the Spirit descended and, as Gerald read and emphasized, and remained on him. That's new. That's new. This is a permanent anointing. Unlike anything witnessed in Judaism, this is a messianic anointing. 
This Jesus is not merely anointing himself with the Spirit at his baptism, but as the text says, he will also baptize others in the Holy Spirit as well. That's where you and I come in. John, ha John has witnessed the dawning of the Messianic era. And the final testimony given by John the Baptist appears in verse 34, I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God or the Chosen of God. This goes to the heart of John's testimony about Jesus. This Messiah is known by his unique anointing, his unparalleled identity in the Spirit of God. And so here John has completed his personal witness. In humility, he has deflected glory and interest away from himself and drawn attention to Jesus, describing powerfully who he is and what he will do. And, and that's a template for you and me, because we also point to Christ, we deflect attention from ourselves, and we point to Christ in terms of who he is and what he has done. This chapter is about testimonies, about those who meet Jesus, who recognize they will be changed forever and who discover the true identity, identity of Jesus. This is a story offered to us to persuade and to teach us about the nature of conversion and discipleship. These episodes that we read here encapsulate what John is doing through his gospel, providing a compelling story that weaves characters in and out with that idea of convincing and persuading. So the story is not constructed in some haphazard way. We watch John the Baptist enter the stage and deliver his witness about Jesus. And then four disciples have the same opportunity, first in Judea, then in Galilee. John has selectively built his gospel in order to provide us with a portrait of Jesus and discipleship. This is history, but history recounted with a purpose. One of the striking features of this story as well is the people who become disciples of Jesus and know what to call him. Within this story, there's a litany of titles that could almost serve as an index to the New Testament list of names for Jesus. There's no other chapter in the New Testament that provides as comprehensive a list. As you read 19 to 51, you find Messiah, Prophet, Jesus, Lamb of God, one who baptizes with the Spirit, chosen Son of God, Rabbi or Teacher, Christ, Anointed One, Son of Joseph, Nazarene, Son of God, King of Israel, Son of Man. All of these titles refer to Christ. And I find it surprising that here, this early in Jesus' ministry, followers have an accurate appraisal of who he is. Hmm. I expect that they did not yet fully understand the implications of what they were saying because Jesus had not yet done his miracles. And yes, John makes this clear in the next chapter when he says, after he was raised from the dead, the disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. It was likely not until after Easter that the full implications of Jesus came rushing home to his followers. For us as readers... In this dramatic scene, we are exposed to the Christ-focused content of discipleship. We must realize that Jesus is not merely the sum total of the titles given here. 
These descriptors unveil something of Jesus' activity amongst us and his identity with the Father. The baptism narrative is trying to tell us something about Christ, uniquely filled with the Holy Spirit, and that is a feature of his messianic identity. He is the one to whom we must look for our own baptism in the Spirit. Jesus' as lamb means that he will be a sacrifice offered for the sins of the world. So he's also the one to whom we look for redemption and forgiveness. He's the king, referring to his rulership and his dominance over Israel and over us. I guess these names add an anticipatory element to us as readers, as the story unfolds and they're picked up over and over again. So let's focus a little more closely on conversion and discipleship. I think a dramatic feature of this story turns on the characters themselves. We are actually told very little about them, no detailed history about families or homes. We're not even told about their occupations or how it happened that Peter and Andrew were working for John the Baptist. The central focus of the story is about their contact with Jesus. John becomes a template for Christian discipleship. Affirmation of contact with Jesus leads to self-denial. Further imagery comes with the two stories that follow. In Judea, Jesus meets Andrew, who follows Jesus personally. In Galilee, Jesus meets Philip, who, like Andrew, follows him. Then Andrew goes to Peter, and Philip goes to Nathaniel. And they make the same challenge. Come and see. Come and see. Peter and Nathaniel will not know the truth about Jesus until they have had their own personal experience. In fact, as you notice in the reading, Nathaniel is actually quite cynical until his encounter happens, and this is a conversion template for John. Throughout this gospel, many people will be challenged to come and see. You see, conversion is not about knowledge alone. You can be the smartest man alive, and you can have all knowledge, but it's about coming yourself and appropriating a relationship with Jesus personally. In each case, the experience of discipleship carries one more dimension, that of witnessing. You see, technically, although it's sometimes fun to say, but the idea of stille im Land, the quiet in the land, isn't actually terribly biblical. Yeah, I know, we could pull out that other saying, preach all the time, and sometimes, if necessary, use words. So I'm not saying that it's always just this. Lifestyle speaks powerfully. And, and it never works if my words contradict my lifestyle. <laughs> Boy, those two better support each other. But, but witnessing. John the Baptist, Andrew, and Philip each bring others to Christ intentionally. Converts make new converts. They speak what they know about Jesus and they bring other people along so that they too will come and see. John knows that the process of conversion and discipleship are not matters left in human hands either. Nathaniel must come and see, but Jesus has seen him already. Jesus says, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. These are remarkable words that point to Jesus and his supernatural knowledge, but also to God's sovereign awareness of those who will accept the light. God sees us before we see him. God will come and see before we even think about discipleship. 
God makes his overture before we consider making ours. See, God is the great missionary. God is the great evangelist. God's heart is, is behind it all. In this story, we witness what inquirers need to know in order to become true disciples. Being a follower of Jesus does not mean thoughtlessly following a person named Jesus. It does not mean having an experience that is void of theological content either. Discipleship is a necessary commitment to content as well as conversion. It is a form of persuasion that includes both the heart and the mind. When John the Baptist completes his series of self-denials on the first day, on his second scene of day two, he finds himself identifying Jesus accurately for his disciples and the world. John wants us to have a similar experience to that of these five men, to become disciples whose growth in knowledge and devotion is inspired by these stories. So John claims that discipleship has two elements, essential elements. Disciples must know who Jesus is, and they must have a personal experience that completely reorientates who they are. The language of verse 38 is explicit language of discipleship. These two disciples follow Jesus, and when asked about their interest in him, they, they, what do you want? They ask where he is staying or remaining. And Jesus replies, come and you will see. It's intentionally, this, this language is intentionally used to describe discipleship, to follow, to come and see, to stay and remain. Each describe different aspects of discipleship. It's interesting to see that the same pattern of discipleship is played out with Philip and Nathaniel in the following section. The visit becomes a teaching session in which Jesus discloses his messianic identity. And interestingly, each time we meet Andrew later on in the gospel, he is bringing someone to Jesus. He's bringing someone to Jesus. Andrew finds his brother Peter, brings him to Jesus, and Peter's name is changed to Rock. Despite Peter's impulsiveness and frailty, this name signals Jesus' vision for what Peter will become. Our last paragraph, 43 to 51, is the conversation between Jesus and Nathanael. Nathanael hears about Jesus as a man who fulfills messianic predictions of Moses, and his response is somewhat curious. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Now, I, I won't get into it, but Nathaniel lived in a, another town. And if the older folks will understand this, this would be like somebody from Steinbach saying, can anything good come out of Grunthal? In other words, this rivalry between towns, okay? If you're watching, I'm not dissing Grunthal or New Bothwell. We had these rivalries. When I was growing up, especially our hockey teams, we had these rivalries. And that's, that's really kind of what Nathaniel is saying here. He said, can anything good come from there? He's expressing cynicism, the cynicism of a man who has not yet met compelling evidence. In fact, in his defense, Galilee had seen others that had come forward with claims to being Messiah, and Nathaniel would have none of it. Philip's challenge is appropriate. Evidence becomes convincing when it is personally embraced. Come and see. The refrain of the previous day is repeated, and now becomes Nathaniel's challenge. 
And then Jesus describes Nathanael as a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false, no guile, no deceit. He's, he's transparent. He's a good and honest man. And much to Nathanael's surprise, Jesus refers to seeing him under the fig tree earlier. Nathanael knows exactly what Jesus is talking about. Jesus has the capacity of knowing that which is more than human. He knows Nathanael before Nathanael knows him. And by the way, Jesus knows you before you know him too. That's an amazing thought, that Jesus knows you and me, and he accepts us anyway. At least, I think that's true for all of us. Uh, it's an amazing thing that God accepts us, forgives us, and embraces us, and then calls us co-heirs with Christ. Well, Nathaniel, who had now experienced Jesus for himself, addresses him with a litany of titles, Rabbi, Son of God, King of Israel, and this, these three names complete that portrait that John started on. And here is true faith. This is a man who identifies the true identity of Jesus. Come and you will see. Notice verse 51. There is a subtle change which we don't get in the English. But there's a verb change from the singular to the plural. And I think John is referring to all of us when he says, you will see, you, all of you. He's not talking to Nathaniel anymore. He's talking to all of us. You will see. John is making a pronouncement, or sorry, Jesus is making a pronouncement to all of his disciples and to us as his readers that culminates all that has been revealed during these four days. Jesus is the Son of God who has come to represent God and to die on the cross for you and me. Jesus describes this using Jacob imagery. Remember when angels were descending? Jacob was at Beersheba on his way. He was on his way from Beersheba to Haran, and he stops at Bethel. And in Genesis 28, he says, He had a dream in which he saw a staircase resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were descending and descending on it. The dream is so powerful that Jacob is, is kind of awed and overwhelmed. And when he awakes, he says, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And he called that place Bethel, which means house of God. What's happening here when Jesus says this is that Jesus is indicating that he is precisely that. He's that stairway between heaven and earth. The vision of Jacob describes the place of revelation, the point of connection between heaven and earth, and Jesus is that place. Notice how John inserts that here. Uh, the Jews would have had the connection with Jacob and his experience, his dream. Finally, yes, I'm finally getting there. Love of God and knowledge of God. Those aren't separate. They go together. Love is a virtue, but so is a well-reasoned theology and well-reasoned use of Scripture. Sadly, personal piety without theology is winning the day in some quarters. Loving God has become a spiritual mantra, while there's very little room for obeying Him or listening for the more complex nuances of His expectations on us. In other words, there's often no compelling theological framework from which we can answer difficult questions. 
John's theology in this chapter stands against that kind of emptiness. We are called to be like John the Baptist, Andrew, Peter, Nathaniel, and Philip. People who have a personal relationship with Jesus, yes, who come and see, but also who do not simply have an intellectual understanding of faith, but also remain with him and are transformed by him. We must be people who have an experiential dimension. We must be people whose heart is engaged, who love God, and enjoy a depth of devotion and piety. But more is called for. John the Baptist not only experienced personal selflessness and an overwhelming desire to explain who Jesus was and to glorify him, but he also wanted to explain correctly who Jesus was. There's a theological foundation supporting his commitment. The same is true for the four men who follow the story. These verses are a model for what it means to follow Christ. And as such, it forms a second introduction to the entire gospel after that prologue that we dealt with two weeks ago. And it must be wed, this personal piety, loving God, must be wed to theological sophistication. In other words, knowing God, head and heart. Our faith is not merely commitment, but content as well. Interrogators, like John the Baptist received, can come and press their questions with force and power. But like John the Baptist, disciples like you and I must give unflinching answers. When asked, who are you? The disciple knows exactly what to say. Men and women can come and meet Jesus, but in the end, they acquire an increasingly informed understanding of who Jesus is. He's Rabbi, Messiah, Son of God. And when they have wed their piety with theological insight, they go and evangelize others. They challenge others to have an experience with Jesus and to understand the faith. So we have a twin emphasis on an experience with Jesus and an understanding of truth. Personal piety and theological sophistication. It's the anchor that keeps Philip and Andrew committed with their minds as well as with their hearts. And at the same time, that holds true for you and me. Like John the Baptist, disciples learn that the best witness is simply to introduce people to Jesus and to let him do the rest. It's possible this morning, whether here or online, that I'm talking to some who, who have still not discovered this Jesus, who, who, who have not come to the place of recognizing who Jesus is. Have, have, have not had a personal encounter with this Jesus. And, and so this morning, uh, I, 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 I want to offer to you that Jesus is standing before you with his arms open, saying, come, come and see. And, and, and if you have questions, those are good questions. Questions are never bad. If you have questions, then seek someone out Someone here, someone that you uh, think could give you good answers, uh, someone that will point you to Christ, that will answer your questions. And if you're seated here this morning or you're watching us live stream and, and, and you've come to accept Jesus as your Savior, but, but that step into discipleship or His Lordship is another, 
another challenging step, and, you, and you'd rather cling to the reins of your life yourself, I want to encourage you uh, by telling you that you can't actually separate those two. You and I are saved and redeemed and bought with a price, and our life is not our own. We gladly relinquish all of our rights to Christ because He has bought them and He deserves them. He is our Lord and Savior. So, so together, as a church family, we want, to, we want to walk together and grow in our discipleship, in our following of Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And, and we want to encourage one another. We want to lift one another up in that. And sometimes you may be struggling so hard, it's hard to cling to that anchor, and somebody will need to come alongside and hang on to that anchor for you. Sure. That's why we're a family. That's why we're a family. Let me pray, and then I'm going to ask um, Joel and Stanley uh, to come up, and we'll see if there are some questions that we should respond to. Uh, but let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this day. Thank you for your grace and your faithfulness and your love. And thank you for entrusting us with this amazing task of being your ambassadors. Oh, how daunting that is. And yet, through the power of the Holy Spirit, as Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So we commit ourselves to you again this day to that task. Guide us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Trevor, do you want to join us? Impromptu? No? You're good? Okay. Now he's worried about me because he never knows what I'm going to do. Uh, why should we expect the same pattern that applied to the disciples should apply to us in regards to calling and following? How does this happen today? Good question. Stanley? Can you rephrase the question? Oh, repeat it again, sorry. Rephrase or no, repeat? repeat. Okay. No, rephrase. Why should we expect the same pattern that applied to the disciples should also apply to us in regards to calling and following? How does it happen today? Okay, um, first, uh, God is not stereotyped, and God does not operate with a single formula. And so, God is dynamic mm -hmm. and diverse in his ways. And so, he cannot call you and me the way he called those guys. And what we read in the Bible is just um, an account of how he did it then, and now we have a personal relationship with Jesus. And so he speaks to our heart, and we get his call from the, his words we read and from his words we hear. And so Jesus is not going to appear to anybody like, hey, I'm Jesus, follow me. So we, you, you get, he speaks to your heart. When you read God's word, there's a prompting in your heart. And when you hear God's word from the pulpit, there, there, you, you get a witness in your spirit that I... I once said that um, the word spoken to in a congregation is for everybody. But the one you hear directly becomes your word. Like so we are all in the same church listening to one preacher but hearing different things as it applies to us. And, and, and God is creative. You're absolutely right. 
which means that he uh, willingly uses circumstances and people, events, uh, different things in our lives uh, to, to draw us to himself. Uh, so so we, don't, we don't box him in. We don't say you're limited to this. Uh, he's, he's far too creative for that. Yeah. No other questions at this time. Okay. Well, that's good. We got off fairly good, Stanley. Perfect. Thank you. Let's call the praise band up and we'll do some more singing. <laughs>